Welcome back to the Unison Church Podcast. In this episode, we will be listening to uh, a part two sermon that I gave at my church, Pond Hill. Uh, one disclaimer is that it is definitely a companion to my previous episode, so if you haven't listened to that yet, I would highly recommend going back and listening to that. But uh, just in case you missed it, here's kind of like a quick synopsis. We were uh, coming off of a series on generosity, biblical generosity, called The Path to Prosperity, based in um, 2 Corinthians. And um, from there, uh, I launched into this two-parter that's really about a theology of work. And so this is a theology of work. Last week, we focused on the um, Old Testament. In particular, we focused on Genesis chapter 1 and 2, creation of man, how um, work is really intrinsic to the reason why humankind was created in the first place. This week, I decided to turn to the New Testament. In particular, we focused on the early church, and we looked at Acts chapter 2, and I would highly recommend uh, giving that a read as like a primer to this. And so we talked about the attitudes of the early church and what they were doing and uh, how that was generous and how that informed our work. And we really came down to this idea of the breaking of bread and at the center of that is the Lord's Supper. So the second disclaimer is that the service was very much oriented to end with the uh, Lord's Supper. And so um, you may hear some things that might sound out of place on a podcast because of that. Um, it's okay. Um, you know, you could even potentially participate in the Lord's Supper while you're watching. Um, but just kind of have that in your mind. If that's uh, something that's part of your um, tradition, I, I, would, I would encourage you to kind of, you know, think about that. Um, and so, yeah, so we're about to launch into um, A Theology of Work, Part 2, The Early Church. Well, last week we discussed work in our sort of cap to this series, Path to Prosperity, or the Path of Prosperity, and uh, we are wrapping up that series today. So if you've been here every Sunday for this service, way to go. Give yourself a high five. That's good stuff. Uh, thank you for being here. Wow, a lot of you guys have been here every week. That's awesome. That's really cool. Thank you. Um, so it was our, our, our uh, you know, last week and this week's goal was to kind of take the path to, of prosperity to a different place, talk about our work. Because I think a lot of people, when they're talking about prosperity, you know, a lot of people even get into working for the purpose of prosperity. And certainly, I think it draws to mind um, work and how we make money and all of those different things, things that we spend our life doing to kind of build it up, all right? And so last week, we actually talked about how important it is that we work because um, we were created to do that. In fact, it was part of our original purpose. We said last week that our original purpose was to be God's partners in the ongoing work of creation. And before those of you guys that are currently unemployed or retired or homemakers or all that, don't check out because we're talking about creational work, not necessarily just vocational work. So anything that you do that's productive would fall under the category of work today. So if I say any, if I use any words that are work, remember that you're included in this too, even though you don't necessarily work a vocational career at this moment, you're still called to work in the way that the scripture is calling us to work in this, in this, uh, this, these texts that we're going to read. So last week, okay, we discussed sort of the, the beginning, the, the original purpose for work and how it's tied into the reason why God created us in the first place. All right. So this week we're actually going to talk about the back end of work. So what do we what do we do after we work? What do we do with all those things? 
Um, what's, what's the reason that we work, but like not from the front of work, from the back of work, okay? And this will make more sense as we keep going. You might say, haven't we been talking about generosity, which is what we do with the things that we earn when we work? Um, haven't we been talking about this from the beginning? Um, and you're right, which makes my job a whole lot easier this morning. So I'm going to do like a quick run through of some of the things that we've said in this entire series, okay? If you've been here, you might recognize some of these things, but these are kind of like presuppositions we all have to have when we go to the text this morning, okay? So here we go. First, we got everything we own is just on loan, which is a, which is a classic John Maxwell quote. Um, it basically just means God owns everything anyway. So, you know, nothing really truly belongs to us. It all belongs to God. Everything we have ultimately comes from him. How about this one? We are called to be generous with everything, which includes our money, but it's not just limited to our money. All of the things that we do, we're called to be generous with those things. Being generous brings blessings from God, which is like a very bold statement to make that we can incur the blessings of God by being generous, but it's what the scripture says in several different places. It's one of the only disciplines attached to a promise from God in Scripture, saying, if you do this, then I do this. Um, and it's, it happens several times in the, in the Scripture. Uh, giving to the church is part of our responsibility as God's people. Caring for those in need is part of our responsibility as the people of God. And caring about social justice, so being generous with our community, is not only part of our heart's mission, but also our material's mission. So it's baked into what it means to be a Jesus follower. So we talked about how our origins now breathe purpose into our work and how Genesis 1 and 2, the accounts of, of humans, the very first time we see humans, God calls them to get to work. Um, and uh, there's another purpose in our work, though. And this one, um, instead of looking at the very beginning of Scripture, we're going to look at the beginning of the church. So we're going into the New Testament, and we're going into Acts first, and then we'll talk about 1 Corinthians. So two of the, the closest letters, uh, closest bodies of writing uh, after Jesus' ministry. And so we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 2 if you want to get turning there. But here, I'm going to give you the, the main point right off the bat, and then we're going to see it in Scripture. It says this, the New Testament church's work ethic was not only to provide for yourself, but also to provide for the needs of others. This whole statement it basically says, you know, your work is not just about you. The New Testament vision was working and providing not only for yourself, but also for the needs of others. If you don't believe me, take a look at Acts chapter 2. If you go and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, we're going to go to verse 41 today. And um, this is the first really big look at the organized church in Acts. There's one statement prior to this that has to do with the original, like, dozen or so believers that were following Jesus. You might say that is the first the first description of the church in Acts chapter 1. But so what happens is after uh, Jesus is uh, ascended, the disciples, they're kind of praying in an upper room, and they're prompted by the Holy Spirit to get out there and accomplish the great commission that Jesus told them to do. So Peter gets up and he leads the rest of the disciples in this crazy, miraculous act that we call Pentecost that happens in the beginning of Acts chapter 2. And then Peter gives this sermon. And after the sermon, this is what happens uh, in verse 41. It says this, Then they, the people listening, glad that, that had gladly received his word. So they had received his word, they believed on Jesus, and they were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. That's a lot of people. 
And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in a breaking of bread and in prayer. Now, let me pause right there. When the scripture says, and they continued steadfastly, or if you're reading a more modern translation, they might say they devoted themselves to this small list of things. What it's saying is that this list of descriptions here, just like we talk about in Genesis, every word of scripture is placed very intentionally. And so when you find, when you come across things like this, where where there's like a little list, there's a reason why that list exists. And uh, it's, it's intentional. So when we read this list, this is the kind of stuff that the church was all about. Like this was the, the um, you might say like the zeitgeist of the church. This is what it looked like to be part of the church, that you would be devoted to doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Essentially, those are the core characteristics of anybody that wanted to be part of the church's community. These are the things you had to care about in uh, the early Jerusalem church. And we might get back to some of those too. It's a really good list. I mean, if you're thinking, what does a scriptural church look like? If you're, maybe you move and you're looking for another church, these are the four things you should be looking for. Um, I think it's probably the most concise list that you could find in scripture. Let's keep going though. Verse 43, it says this, and fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles and all that believed were together and had all things in common. Listen to how in common these believers were, because you read that and you're like, all right, that's cool, but uh, what does that mean? Here's, here's what it means. They were so like-minded, so generous, so concerned with one another, that in verse 45 it says this, and they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continually daily with one accord in the temple and breaking of bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. You guys ever think about what happens if like a zombie apocalypse happens? This seems random, I know. I know it seems random. You guys ever think about that? Like what happens if like the apocalypse happens, right? And there's like zombies or whatever? Parents' basement? They're gonna care for you? Okay, if you say so. I've thought about like what it would be like to, to join, you know, like a group of people and make like a compound. You know what you see in all the movies? They make like a compound. And then they like, everybody gets all the canned goods that they had in their house and they put them in like one storage place, you know, and everybody like gets all their weapons together because these are always violent movies. And everybody, you know, they, all the kids like go to school at like one building. You know what I'm talking about? Like all those TV shows. That's kind of what I picture when I'm thinking about the early church. Like everybody kind of got together, pulled their resources, they took all the food out of their cabinets, like they put it in one place and then they sold all their stuff and they put, you put the money in like one place. I don't think it exactly looked like that, but that's just what I think of when I read this verse. I don't know. It's kind of weird, but man, I, this is a crazy thing though. Like this is, um, when you see those kinds of TV shows and movies and stuff, you know, you think like, wow, that is like another world. Like that's like another reality. That's what I think of when I read this verse too. I'm like, wow, a community where everybody sells what they got, they pull everything and they start taking care of each other. That's so different from how we live today. You know, it's like otherworldly, um, and, uh, you know, it, does, it, it doesn't exactly look like the zombie apocalypse compound that I was just describing, but, but it does look like we, they sold their goods, they pooled their resources, and they started caring for one another in like a very emergent way. Um, like it was a, an urgent necessity to care for one another here. And at the very end of this, the very end of the verse, verse 46, uh, it says, singleness of heart, which is a really interesting phrase. I was looking at the Greek word, for singleness or sincerity, as your or scripture said. It says, aquilites, sure, that's, I think, how you say it, which is never used anywhere else in the Bible, okay? This word that says singleness fire, never ever used anywhere else in the Bible. This is the only example of its use. 
So it's like kind of tricky to translate. I'm not a Greek guy, okay? And I'm only just barely a Hebrew guy. So, um, so you have to bear with me with my Greek here. But um, what, what I think that it's getting at here is that the early church was laser focused on this, this idea of being generous with one another to such a degree that you would sell what you have to get money to care for the people that needed stuff in the church. They were so laser focused on this and everybody was. They had this unity and this laser focus on um, these things. And they were totally steadfastly devoted to generosity, just like they were steadfastly devoted to doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. It speaks, I think, to this word, speaks to the steadfastness of the community, the gel that was holding these people together, and the singular focus that they had. And their perseverance uh, in brotherly love is rewarded by God in verse 47, as they're praising God, having favor with all the people the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. This passage is wild. Like, I don't know if you read that and feel the same way as I do, but I've always read this passage of scripture and just felt super convicted by Acts chapter two, the the later part here. Um, And like, I've just been so convicted by this, especially in the last seven years as I've been a pastor here. Um, Like, I mean, think of this church that's described in Acts. I want you to think of this where everybody's coming together, loving on each other. They're eating food over each other's houses every day. You know, they're so joyful. They're filled with gladness. Everybody liked them. Like, people liked this church. That's what it, that's how it's described in verse 47. And if you read, like, the ancient Roman documents about their thoughts on the church, it's really interesting because they, on one hand, they hated the church because it was such a threat to the Roman government. But on the other hand, they're like, these guys are taking care of poor and they're doing good things in the community and, like, all this stuff. And so it's like this weird thing where they kind of did like them, even though at the same time they were threatened by them. Um, but uh, man, they were loving everybody. And I just want to ask the question, this is the thing that convicts me, does this look like the church today? Does this description of in Acts chapter 2 look like the church today? And I would say definitely not nationwide. I mean, if we're thinking like looking around at the American church, I would say absolutely not. Does that, it doesn't look anything like this, in fact. Um, does that look like our local expression here at, at Pond Hill? You know, I, I hope it looks more like this passage than the average church. I mean, that's, the, that's the, certainly the goal. Um, but yeah, I think sometimes we come up lacking here. Um, and this isn't just for me as a pastor, because we believe that you are the church. Um, everybody sitting in this room right now is Pond Hill. Like You have a responsibility here. And so each of us are shaping the church. And so this description of the church that's found at the end of Acts here, I want to just ask the question, does this, is this descriptive of you? Does this describe you and how you are in the church? And I don't think this is just a descriptive passage, like talking about how these individual people in Jerusalem uh, were acting. I actually think this is a, what's called a prescriptive passage, meaning when we read this, we should desire that our own churches be like this as well. Um, and I think it's a powerful Example, and I, I got to confess, man, the, the four things that they're devoted to, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread together, and prayer, I, those are not always top of mind for me. Um, and I think the same could be said of you. Hopefully you're not going to leave me up here stranded um, alone, right? Uh, man, if we, if, I think if we would devote ourselves like the early church did to these things, um, we would be a much better church and a powerful example to those around us. So yeah, let's talk about uh, this church with our main point in mind here, right? So the New Testament church's work ethic was not only to provide for yourself, but also to provide for the needs of others. So I want to highlight 
all the obvious ways that the early church was doing this, and I'm realizing that my, my highlighted PDF didn't highlight here, but that's okay. We'll figure it out together. On this journey, real time, we're going to look in Acts 2, verses 44 through 47. I want you to notice every way, every obvious way in the scripture that the church is uh, providing for one another. If you didn't bring your Bible, the sermon notes have this passage written on them. So go ahead and pull them out. Take a look. Starting in verse 44, it says, And all that believed were together and had all things in common. I think that's probably one of them. They sold their possessions. That's definitely one of them. And part of them to all men. That's one too. As every man had need. And they continually daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. That's probably one of them too did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all people, probably because they were being so generous. And the Lord added to their church daily, such as should be saved. I mean, you know, when we're talking like possession and goods, like money, food, home, vehicles, pots, pans, toys, all that stuff, right? It's like all the things that you buy with your money that you earn at work, all of those things in the Acts 2 church here, all of that was up for grabs in the community. Like, I'm sure that some people still had their house, you know, because obviously they went from house to house eating, so somebody had to have a house, right? But their house was, like, up for grabs. Like, if somebody needed something bad enough, they might have sold it to, to get something for someone else. Or maybe they would downsize so they could give more or something like that, you know? What a beautiful picture of what it means to be the church. Here's one uh, commentator, William Barclay. He's a really great theologian. He says this in his commentary on the Acts. It was a sharing church. These early Christians had an intense feeling of responsibility for each other. Real Christians cannot bear to have too much when others have too little. Yeah, such a beautiful description. An intense feeling of responsibility for one another. I think that's exactly what Acts 2 calls us to here. And I can't help thinking about how um, bad of a job we do at this sometimes. Um, the Christian church as a whole, and even us here today, uh, I can't help thinking how bad of a job I do at this sometimes. And like I said, there's some really obvious ways that Acts 2 calls us to provide for each other, but there's also this not-so-obvious thing tucked behind this verse that I want to talk about today specifically. Uh, it's found in verses 42 and 46. So if, you're, if you have your scripture open, you might be able to figure out what it is. But it's this thing, the breaking of bread. So central was the breaking of bread to the Acts 2 church that it's one of the things that the church is steadfastly devoted to in verse 42. And some have claimed that this breaking of bread refers to communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or whatever you want to say there. Um, and certainly it includes that, but it's about more than just the specific moment when we remember the Lord's death through the bread and wine. It's, it's, it's more than that. No, intrinsic to the early church's practice was this idea of eating with one another. So last year, we began celebrating this event called the table every month, and a lot of it has to do with this, this, this line of thought here. Um, the last Sunday of every month, we have a big meal together after church. Last, last week, we had some really good chili. Uh, I did try them all. Uh, I loved them in the moment, regretted it a little bit later. Can't lie. Had like three bowls probably all together. Um, really good though. Really good chili. Great job, guys. So we try to have people stay once a month after church for this, this big meal, the table, where we're devoted to eating with one another. And um, let me tell you, something magical happens when you eat with people. And uh, I use that phrase, it like magical, intentionally, because it really is. There's something that happens when you eat with other people. 
um, there's this binding, like a cohesion that happens when we share meals with one another. And in the early church, this was especially true. Like, think about this image of the early church. And as you read through the New Testament, this is kind of where I'm getting some of this stuff. Um, but you really see this come to fruition in some of Paul's letters, okay? So at the table, it was the only place in ancient history where some of these things would happen. Ready? Here's some of the stuff that was happening around these tables. Slaves would eat at their master's tables. That's crazy. We don't understand how crazy that is because, thank God, we live in a, a society that we don't have slavery here. Um, but in this time, to have your slaves eat at your table, uh, that's wild. Jewish people would eat with unclean Gentiles. Samaritans would eat with Israelis. Egyptians would eat with Judeans. The rich would eat with the poor. The working class would eat with the ruling class. A Pharisee would eat with somebody who was uneducated. This was huge. I mean, it was culturally taboo, and it was a radical showing of unity. But of course, with every wonderful act comes a great opportunity to mess it up. And uh, we know that to be true, for sure. And so let's take, a, let's take a look at a breaking of bread example in 1 Corinthians, where Paul is picking at the 1 Corinthians for doing this wonderful act of unity totally and completely wrong. And so it was a deadly serious issue. Paul pens it in both 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. 10 is definitely designed to foreshadow 1 Corinthians 11. So we got to start there. He says this, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Now the Corinthian church had a lot of issues in fact, the first letter of Corinthians is a corrective letter from Paul that's written to address very specific issues that were going on in uh, Corinthians. If you want to hear more about it, I have a podcast series about it, shameless plug, on the Unison Church podcast. You can take a look at it. Okay, wherever podcasts are listened to, it is there. Anyway, much of Paul's letter here is uh, designed to restore unity because at the core of all the Corinthians' problems is this lack of unity. They're picking on each other. They're getting into disagreements. They're downplaying each other. They're ostracizing each other. Paul's trying to get them to be unified, which is exactly what we see of the church in Acts chapter 2. He's trying to get them back to this idea of unity. And the Corinthians are getting this really wrong, and you can see that in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. So we're going to skim through it quickly, and then we'll hit a couple things um, on the back end. So 17 says this, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. You come together not for better, but for the worse. That's a pretty bad way to start a paragraph. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest to you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone takes before other his own supper, one's hungry, and another is drunken. What, have you not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Let me take a really quick moment here to describe the situation because you might have caught what's going on, but sometimes, you know, especially in this old English, it can be difficult to catch exactly what's happening here. Um, and we kind of have to do some reconstruction because we're not given the situations. We're only given Paul's response to the situation. So we're going to try to reconstruct what was going on here. In Corinthians, basically, when the church was coming together for meal times, one group of people was eating all the food while another group of people hadn't gotten a crack of the food yet. All right. Presumably, it was the well-to-dos who were eating all the food. Those people who had homes that were filled with food anyway were eating. They would show up to the party. They would consume all the food before the poor working class would get there. 
And so essentially the rich were bringing food for themselves to the party and they were eating their own food while the poor were bringing much less food to the, to the party and they were eating their own food such that the rich were eating so much that they got drunk and the poor were eating so little that they went hungry. That's the idea of what's going on here. Um, some have even theorized that um, the rich people are getting there because they don't have to work jobs. They're getting there early, like before the working class people even get out of work to get there in the first place. Some people have theorized that. Um, and that could totally be a thing. But regardless, the poor people are eating the poor people's food, which is lacking, and the rich people are eating the rich people's food, which is plenty. And that's the idea. And uh, at this point, Paul moves into what we often refer to as the Lord's Supper, but not until he calls what they were doing worse and hateful in verse 17 and 22. So we're moving into 23, coming off of this. For I've received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he break it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, and he had supped and saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. I think what we often do here is, one, forget the context of this passage, and two, hone in on the, but let a man examine himself in verse 28, and the judge ourselves in verse 31, in order to make the Lord's Supper only about us and God. However, if you consider the context of this verse, right, again, what we alluded to in verse 34, when he says to eat and to drink unworthily, it has less to do with your vertical relationship between yourself and God and much more to do with your horizontal relationship between you and the other people around you. Remember, that's what Paul's talking about in this whole passage. So when Paul says to eat and drink the Lord's Supper unworthily, he's not talking about your own personal piety, your own personal holiness to repent un unrepentant sin. What he's talking about is, hey, get right with the people that are sitting around the table with you. Get right with all of those people Instead of sowing seeds of disunity, get right with those people when you take the Lord's Supper. Now, you know, it's, is it really wrong to examine your own personal piety, your own righteousness, your own unrepentant sin before you take the Lord's Supper? Of course not, right? Self-reflection is a virtue that's often talked about in the scripture, and it's important that we reflect on whether or not we're truly committed to following Jesus, which is often how we frame that examining yourself before the Lord's Supper. I think that's fine. But what Paul's really talking about here is to check your heart and examine yourself, make sure that you're living a life that is generous, unified, loving to the people around you. And uh, it means that to make sure you're not avoiding your brothers and sisters here, it's to make sure that you're actively seeking the meeting of needs in your church family. That's what Paul's talking about when he talks about the Lord's Supper. Interesting how rarely we hear that talked about. 
Um, but that's definitely the context of First uh, Corinthians, for sure. It's like pretty black and white. Um, and uh, this is super important. Like I said, I did kind of this deep dive into First Corinthians. Like all of 2023, I was studying First Corinthians. And a big part of my study of First Corinthians was this verse. In fact, it was the primary reason why I spent so much time in the book. Because I kind of became, um, I became convinced that maybe, just maybe, we were doing the Lord's Supper incorrectly. And um, I, I, you know, I, I didn't necessarily say like, oh, the way that we've been doing the Lord's Supper is totally wrong and incorrect and we got to change everything. That's not, that's, that's not where I landed, right? What I landed with was just the vision of this passage, which is that the Lord's Supper is not just about you and God. It's about you and the people sitting next to you. And so never again will I do the Lord's Supper without bringing that up because it's, uh, it's intrinsic to the passage here. Uh, in Paul, especially in 1 Corinthians, and also for Jesus, unity is the lifeblood of the church. If there's no unity, the church is broken. In fact, unity is the entire point of the church. Uh, it's necessary for our worship of Jesus. We have to love each other in a radical way, and uh, we have a responsibility to provide for one another. We stand by that. Uh, so when we talk about the New Testament's work ethic, it's not only to provide for ourselves, but also for the needs of others, for the sake of unity, and it's often displayed in the early church with the breaking of bread. So the way I think about this now is I think about um, the breaking of bread is kind of this example of concentric circles, okay? So it kind of looks like a bullseye. I got a picture for you on the screen there. So if we're talking about unity, right, as this first circle here. At the center of unity is this idea of breaking of bread. So breaking of bread, eating together, um, is at the center of our unity. It's the way that we practically show our unity, eating with one another. And then at the very center of the breaking of bread is this moment that we call the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist or whatever it is that you call this moment where we remember the life and death of Jesus on our behalf. Um, so at the, there, you know, the Lord's Supper becomes the center of the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread becomes the center of unity. And it just shows kind of what exactly is going on here because our unity is not just limited to our breaking of bread, right? It's just best exemplified by our breaking of bread with one another. We're providing for one another needs in a very tangible way. And the Lord's Supper is not all that breaking bread is, but it's at the center of what it means to break bread when we remember our connection to God and therefore our connection to the people around us as well. It's absolutely central to what we're going. So you might say at this point, this isn't a sermon about work. This is a sermon about eating. And you'd be 100% right if you were to say that. It is a sermon about eating. Um, but as many are so quick to remind us in this conversation, and maybe you've been thinking about this verse because you've been conditioned to do so, in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, it reminds us that those who do not work do not eat. Maybe you've heard that verse before in the context of talking about being unified and selling your goods and giving them to other people and Maybe it starts to sound too political, and we remind that our, 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 our forefathers here in America quoted this verse often as a uh, defense of capitalism. But basically, it's important, this is what that verse actually means, it's important to contribute to the pile. Okay, if there's a feast at the center of the table, it's important to contribute to that pile. And that act of contributing to the pile is what we're talking about when we talk about working today. Um, so yes, you can do that by earning money and using that money to buy food, but you could also do that in other ways, like cooking the food or cleaning the food. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of ways to do that. No one is exempt from it. We're talking about everybody eating what is provided communally. Okay, so just because you only brought 
one thing. doesn't mean that you don't get to partake in the rest of it, okay? So the church wasn't just relying on a few rich individuals. They had everything in common. So when they came together, everybody brought something. Maybe the rich brought like nice, fancy, expensive wine or something, while the poor brought cornmeal. Or perhaps those who had personal chefs provided the main course, while the working class picked up bread rolls from the market on the way home from their shift, or as I am so famously known for at my family gatherings, the ice. <laughs> Everybody forgets the ice. So I am always picking up the ice and bringing the ice. Yeah, so all that stuff, you know. Perhaps the children made the desserts while the elderly made the salads. I don't know. It all worked out, but everybody was contributing. It doesn't matter how young, how old, how rich, how poor, how much you worked or how little you worked. Everybody contributed to the pile and everybody enjoyed it. Wildly enough, in 1 Corinthians 12, the chapter that happens right after that, guess what Paul talks about? Everybody being the body and how everybody has their own unique role to play in the church. And if one person isn't functioning, nobody else is functioning. It's crazy. It's almost like the progression of thought continues through 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12. It's wild. The New Testament church's work ethic was not only to provide for yourself, but also to provide for the needs of others. Man, our work is so often me-focused. Like, I'm working this job to advance my career so I can achieve financial stability, so I can buy a house, right? Um, you know, uh, there's nothing necessarily wrong with those things, but um, what's wrong is that when that becomes the core reason that we work in the first place, that's when it becomes wrong, because then it's about building my kingdom instead of building God's kingdom. And so if we have this idea that everything that we own anyway is up for grabs in the church, right? It's up for grabs for providing for other people. It kind of takes our eyes off of ourselves and onto ultimately God, because we're doing it for his sake anyway. Um, so yeah, if we're working so that we can impact the lives of people, we get to use our resources to care for people who have less than I do, so we can enjoy one another's presence on maybe like a new patio or a porch, or that we can steward what God has given us well. We can still grow in our careers and achieve financial stability, whatever the heck that means, but uh, suddenly it's not about us anymore. It's, about, it's not about our kingdom, it's about God's kingdom. So Jesus says that the church right now is God's kingdom on earth, that we're citizens of an eternal kingdom that is coming soon, but it's already here at the same time. And so we need to spend our lives building that kingdom, not our kingdom, not the kingdom of America, not the kingdom of mom and dad, not the kingdom of whatever. We are building God's kingdom here on earth. We're citizens of that right now. And so the way that we do that as far as work ethic is concerned, as we provide not only for ourselves, but also for those who have needs. A unified church putting on the display of love that Christ had for us. Everybody partakes, everybody contributes. And this idea of breaking bread, I think is something that we need to continue in our church, but also even advance further we should be over each other's homes eating. We should be um, eating as many meals here as, 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 as we can. Like you might think of the, the end of the month table as like something that's very optional. And it's not like we're going like to kick you out if you don't go to the table. That's not what we're talking about. But, but it's not an optional thing. It's central to what it means to be the church, is to eat together. And so that's why we do it so often. That's also why we do the Lord's Supper so often. Towards the beginning of my study, we resolved in 2023, once I actually talk about this in the business meeting a little bit too, we resolved that we're going to take communion every single month because during COVID, we had gotten kind of lax with it. 
um, because obviously we couldn't take communion together. We were all in our homes and, uh, you know, worshiping online. And we led people in communion a couple times. When we got back in the building, what we noticed was that the Lord's Supper was something that started to kind of fall through the, tr- the cracks a little bit, you know, because we weren't used to doing it. So we didn't have a rhythm of doing it. So if you've been in the church for a while, you may remember that, you know, there was a year where we probably only took communion three times, maybe three, four times. Um, and so uh, we decided in 2023, we got together, we said, communion is definitely like really important. <laughs> like it seems to be something that the church is like totally devoted to in the book of Acts. Uh, and so uh, we really should prioritize doing this more often. So we made the commitment that we were going to do Lord's Supper every single month. Uh, but what we didn't want to do was make it like a routine that didn't mean anything. Cause I think that happens a lot in churches with communion. And so we said, we're not going to do communion unless we plan the whole service around communion. So we're going to find the place where it actually makes sense to do communion and do it there. Um, so last month we did it at the table, um, which was last week. Uh, it happened to be this time around. This month as I was preparing, I said, man, the center of this idea that our work ethic should be not only to provide for ourselves, but also provide for other people. At the center of that idea is communion. Um, it's where Paul goes with communion. It's where Acts goes with communion. And so um, we decided we're going to do it uh, t- today and do communion, even though we just did it last week because we feel like it, it makes sense. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to invite you guys into that moment of self-examination that Paul talks about in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. But I want to I remind you that we're not just examining ourselves for the sake of our own personal piety. You know what that means? Like our own personal like goodness. Like am, am I sinning right now? Like, do I have a struggle in my life that I need to work out? That's not exactly what we're doing, although that's a good thing to do. And I would highly recommend that you recommit yourself to the Lord every Sunday, not just the Sundays that we take communion. Um, But what I want you to think about is, am I really using my resources, the things that I worked for, the time that I have, the talents that God has given me, am I really, are those really up for grabs in the church? Like, is my stuff really up for grabs in the church. And I want you to examine yourself in that way and remind yourself of the unity that God gives to us through grafting us into his body. You know, John 1.12 says that as many as received Jesus, to them gave he the power to become sons and the daughters of God. That's a beautiful uh, description of our relationship with God, that we're his sons and daughters. But if we're all his sons and daughters, then that makes all of us siblings. And so when we receive the Lord's Supper and we think about what Jesus did for us, how he paid for um, our sins on the cross, right? How he offered us new life. He's not offering us that new life just with us and him. He's offering us a new family of believers together. And our work ethic should be to provide not only for ourselves, but also for the needs of others. So as we, as we begin this process of taking the Lord's Supper, I want to invite you into a, a moment of self-examination. Is that really how you live your life? Do you really uh, live your life in a way that you're being radically generous with the people around you? You've been listening to the Unison Church Podcast. If you're a Christ follower, I hope this has encouraged you to grow closer, not only to him, but also to his family. May we unite in our allegiance to him and raise our voices together to worship Yahweh. If you're not a Christ follower, I hope that this has represented Christ well to you. May this spark your curiosity towards Jesus and his people. In any case, I hope you'll connect with us again here on the podcast and share it with a friend. You can find links in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to us through other ways as well. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to being with you again soon.